friends, and welcome to the round 11 edition of Don the Stat. Dreamtime at the G became ecstasy at the G when Sam Durham marked at the top of the goal square and put us one point ahead with seven seconds to go. The win taking our season to five and five and ninth on the ladder. We're off to Perth on Saturday night against the Wounded Eagles and a chance to take our win-loss ratio into the positives. I'm Jonathan Walsh, and to chat through it all, I'm joined by my co-host Ian Hume. Hume, mate, how's things? Mate, things are going really well. Still on a high after Dreamtime. Such a great feeling. Finally getting a win against Richmond. Uh, after what I said last week, I did manage to keep my gloating to a minimum, so I still am allowed in the house. Uh, but inside, I'm still flying and excited to see if we can keep up the momentum this week. How about yourself? Yeah, I um, I did keep the, the spare bed made up, mate, until Thursday, just in case. I, I figured... Uh, by this morning once I hadn't heard from you for uh, needing to to lob I um I I took the sheets off so yeah I'm going well still yeah basking in the glory of that win it was uh yeah such a great night uh such a great event uh and a celebration of, of our indigenous game but also yeah great to to finally get that Richmond monkey off the back and, and get a win against them absolutely well, look, before we get into tonight, I just want to announce that June's bonus episode of Don the Stat is going to be coming out this Monday. It's going to be a chat with Tasmanian sports journalist and Essendon fan Alex Fair about his support of the Bombers and also a look at what's going on with Tasmanian footy, given everything that's come out since the announcement of the 19th team. This is going to be available to patrons this coming Monday before being out on the main feed a week later. We've also enabled the free trial option on Patreon. So that gives you a week free access. So if you're interested in checking out that episode early, you can do so using the free trial and then seeing what else there is to offer um, and seeing if you want to stick around. Uh, while I'm on the subject of Patreon, I want to thank our new patrons, Patrick White and Paul Cherry. Uh, also, thanks to everyone who came down and met us before Dreamtime at the Founders Bar at the MCG. So shout outs to James, Taz, Luke, Nick, Andrew, Rob, Bruce, Craig and his dad. Uh, there were others that I haven't remembered the names of. So if you're one of those, uh, please just hit me up on Twitter and let me know that I forgot your name and I won't forget it next time. Yeah, well done on organising that, mate. And thanks to everyone who came along. It was good to to put some faces to some names and Twitter handles. So, uh, yeah, and, and uh, shame we didn't get the opportunity to to celebrate together afterwards, but it was certainly good to, um, yeah, to, to meet some fellow Don's fans. Absolutely. Well, look, let's get into it. It may have been six days ago, but the key moments are, are seared in my mind. Uh, that last minute and a half was some of the most gripping football I've ever witnessed. And to actually come out of top on the end was such a special feeling. We'll start, as always, by going over our main pre-match focus areas before looking at the match more broadly. And the first key point was to match Richmond in contested ball and really put them under pressure. Uh, well, Overall, we ended up down 125 to 133 in contested possessions, but that was after being down 40 to 29 in the first quarter. So if you look at it after quarter time, we won contested possession 96 to 93. And when the game was hottest and it mattered most in the final quarter, Essendon won contested possession 37 to 26. So we ran out the game better and stronger than they did. Yeah, you spoke last week of, uh, into some really good depth and detail about the challenges we were having getting the ball out of our back 50 and our inability to take territory from our opposition. And then we we sort of both spoke about the challenges in winning contested ball and how that meant the opposition were able to take territory from us in the first place and then we couldn't get it back. And what we saw in the first quarter was the ball was largely 
sort of parked in their forward half, wasn't it? Uh, you mentioned contested ball was 40 to 29 in, in the first quarter in Richmond's favour. Well, inside 50s were 23 to 11 in, in that quarter as well. And our back line held up remarkably well. And, and we were able to make our the most of it, you know, the few chances that we had when we did go forward, which ultimately kept us in the game. It wasn't going to be sustainable. We weren't going to win that way. But, you know, the, the first quarter ultimately went a long way to saving the game for us. After quarter time, as you mentioned, contested ball was 96 to 93 in our favour. And then inside 50s were 45 to 37 our way. So, you know, win the contest, you're able to get the ball forward and get the ball inside 50. And we were able to do that for a bit longer in the game than they were. Yeah. And sort of flows on from that was to limit Richmond's scoring efficiency. And as you pointed out, they had, you know, quite that high amount of inside 50s and contested possession domination in that opening quarter. But even then we we did limit them to a fair extent there that ultimately kept us in the game and, and gave us the opportunity to win. Uh, so Richmond had 60 inside 50s for the match, but they only had 20 scores. So they went at 40% for inside 50 efficiency. And that was their second lowest for the season after their loss to the Gold Coast. So we did a really good job, even though they were taking a lot of territory. One thing that... Daniel Hoyne from Champion Data pointed out on his uh, regular uh, segment on SEN uh, was referring to Ridley as the backstop. And he was a big reason for why many of Richmond's inside 50s were so ineffective. He had his season high intercepts to go with 32 disposals. Now, he probably did benefit somewhat. and He didn't have an opponent that would have to worry about as much as he would against other sides. So Richmond, obviously, with Rewald as their main forward, they didn't really have that second major target that you would necessarily be concerned about. I'm thinking ahead to matches against teams like the Bulldogs where you'd be going up against uh, a Norton, a Jamara, Hagen, and a Rory Lobb, for example. Ridley probably can't play as loose as he did against Richmond, but overall still a fantastic game from him. And as you pointed out earlier in the week uh, on Twitter, BZT pulled similar numbers in terms of intercepts whilst he also blanketed Richmond's key forward in Rewalt. So fantastic game from him. Yeah, or Brandon Zerk Fletcher, as I've uh, taken to calling him more recently. Uh, yeah, he had 11 intercepts himself to go with his 11 spoils and and obviously kept Rewalt goalless. And, and, you know, just to touch on that first quarter again and, and what our defence had to go through, though, what did we say? There was 23 inside 50s to Richmond. They only kicked the three goals. Like, they weren't accurate. They kicked three goals, five. But, um, you know, that that was a, an outstanding job to to restrict them to three goals. And and meanwhile, we kicked four goals, one from our 11 entries. So, yeah, the, the defence, I think, um, did a, a remarkable job all throughout the game, early in the game to keep us in the contest, and then later on in the game to really help set up from ball movement. Yeah, and our defence is part of our next focus, which is to score from defensive 50 intercepts. So it's one of the the key scoring areas in our game. We average 19 per game across the season. Against Richmond, we only generated eight points from defensive 50 turnovers, which was one goal too. But if you combine all the defensive 50 sources uh, from turnover, stoppage and kick-in, it was 21. And that's pretty close to our average for this season in 24. So whilst we weren't getting the direct scores from intercepts that we were, we were finding other ways to generate scores from our defensive 50, so through through stoppage and kicking. Yeah, it was a pretty low-scoring game, wasn't it? And I thought, um, as a whole, we did a really good job of winning the ball back off um, off Richmond, both through pressure turnovers. I think Richmond had 27 unforced errors or unforced giveaways, unforced turnovers for the game, which is 
their equal highest in the last three seasons. But uh, that wasn't just because Richmond made mistakes. I think there was a lot of inferred pressure going on, particularly from our forwards that contributed to that. Um, and, and I think our setup was uh, around the ground was just re- really, really strong. We also spoke about Richmond being vulnerable from their own kick-ins and to pressure in general. We we generated 31 mid mid zone turnovers for the game. Our season average is 26.7. So we, you know, we were the best part of of four better or four and a bit better than that. And and for context, Collingwood ranked number one in that area at 33.6. So you know, it's a it's a good step forward in a part of the ground that we haven't or a part of the game that we haven't been strong. Uh, we scored three goals, four from forward half turnovers. Two goals, three came from between the 50-meter arc and the center circle, which was our equal best result uh, for the season, along with the round five game against Melbourne. So, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of scores coming from defensive 50 turnovers, as you mentioned. But I think as a as a general rule, our, our turnover and pressure levels were a lot better than what we've seen in weeks gone by. And, and we forced Richmond to give the ball back, whether, you know, forced or unforced errors. Yeah. And then we were really looking to go head to head in the midfield battle. No, no putting tags and no, no trying to limit a player like Toronto or or Bolton going through the midfield there. Yeah, and look, that was how it, it played out. I took a really close look at our clearance work, watching the replay, and um, I sort of slept on it a little bit at the game. It, it didn't notice it all that much, but Stringer, I think had a really important role at center bounces and a different one to we're used to where we're used to seeing him, you know, be the man at the center clearance and, and burst out, get on the run. Uh, but he played a much more defensive role. He used his body to try and get in between, you know, Taranto for the most part, but, but whoever their better ball winner was at the stoppage and, um, and just tried to create a little bit of space for his other midfielders. I think he really helped Zach get the ball um, in a, in a bit of space and time and, and use his foot skills. Toronto still got plenty of it. He still had the nine clearances, four centre bounce clearances and five stoppage clearances. But Richmond didn't score at all from a centre bounce. They'd been averaging 8.3 go- uh, points a game. Sorry, not not goals, points. Um, and they scored just 14 points from stoppages around the ground and they'd been averaging 22.6. So their stoppage game had been pretty important to them scoring and, and we took that away from them, which I think is a is a big win. Absolutely. And if you look at the way Richmond played the game, they also weren't looking to tag anyone. And I think you can see the results of that from the game Merritt ended up playing, although I think Merritt has beaten tags in the past, but the fact that he was best on ground and and was so effective and played such a key role um, suggests that both sides were going head to head there. The next point was to play through Bolter's man. Uh, Whilst he's one of the best interceptors in the comp, he was actually one of the worst at losing one-on-ones. How did you see that play out? Yeah, the way the game was played, it, it didn't really work out that way. Both teams rolled a half forward up to the contest. It's, it's probably the first time since uh, maybe the St Kilda game we've we done that on a regular basis. Uh, so predominantly saw Snelling or Hobbs for us come up from half forward and, and it gave us even numbers at the contest because it's something that Richmond liked to do. You know, we you pretty much saw Prestia. Uh, and the like players a midfielder, even though uh, even though they weren't in at centre bounces. Uh, but what it did mean was that both teams had a plus one in in their back fifty. So, you know that that's how Ridley was able to be that that wicket keeper or backstop uh, so often is because uh, you know we just reshuffled our our back six, uh, given that that Richmond sent an extra one up um, up to the contest. But Richmond also sat Nankervis behind the ball regularly, so. 
there wasn't a lot of space for one-on-ones in our forward lines and or in our forward line, sorry. And I know we made some really obvious and glaring turnovers that led to Richmond goals, but I, I generally thought our ball movement was really clever and, and really good. Uh, it's the most marks we've taken this season. It was 23 more than we took in round one, which is our previous season high. Uh, so we just controlled the ball. And, and it, it was also the the second most marks that Richmond have taken this season. So whilst we let them take their options wide and and we were happy to to give them that, we looked to go forward at any opportunity we had and, and into the corridor whenever we could. And, and, you know, that was often into the hands of players like Perkins and Merrick guys who could really do damage with the ball. So, yeah, it wasn't really a night where we we sort of kicked long to a lot of one-on-ones. It was much more controlled possession once we got the ball in the corridor. Then we looked to hit up options on, on a lead. So, uh, yeah, really different style of play for us this year and um, yeah, yeah, really positive to see, actually. Yeah. And the final point that we said pre-match was to restrict Liam Baker's output. Now, Baker only had 16 disposals, one mark and four intercepts, and that was really well down on his season averages of of 22, 4.5 and and 7.5 respectively. Uh, You suggested pre-game that Menji should sit on him. Did you notice if anyone was putting any time into him specifically that led to his downturn in numbers? No, I don't think so. I think we just really raised our pressure in that part of the ground. I think it also speaks a little bit to to what it means to have dangerous goal kickers in that part of the ground and, and what it means to the opposition. You know, Davey and, and Menzi, even though they're young in their career, they can't, um, uh, you know, they're not players that opposition teams can can sleep on because they do know how to find the goal and, and they are, can be quite dangerous with ball in hand. I think our, our entries when we did need to kick long were, were deeper. The, the benefit of, of winning contested ball and taking territory is when you do have to kick long inside 50 under pressure, you're getting it in deeper. And, and we had 16 tackles inside 50, which is the most that, that we've had this season. So I just think it was a bit more of a, a team effort made and, and the way that we play the game. I think, you know, overall, it was really refreshing to see us come to a game with a, a real distinct plan in mind and, and execute it really well. I think so often we've seen us in sides of years gone by just go into shootouts and need to kick really big scores to win. This was much more of an, an arm wrestle and, and we really tried to lock the game down and control the ball. Controlling possession is not something that is new to us, but I, I think the, the, the methodical nature and the way that we did it, the way that we... Uh, we looked to take territory with short kicks and then get into the corridor was a, uh, if not necessarily different, certainly much more better executed than we've seen in the past. Uh, we had possession for 45% of the match compared to Richmond at just 39%. So that's, that speaks a little bit to, to our ability to control the ball. Um, and then, you know, we balanced that up against the fact that we had six of our top 12 from our best and fairest last season not playing. Uh, you know, Shield, Parrish and Setterfield were three of our four starting mids uh, early in the season and and they weren't there. So to find a way to to win against an opposition in a different, playing a different style of footy to what we're, we're typically used to, undermanned and against an opposition we haven't beaten in a long, long time, I think it was really impressive, mate. And, and I think also just the contrast of, and be a little bit amiss if we didn't speak about the last minute and a half. Um, the, you know, I, I probably don't need to remind anybody of what happened because I think we've all watched it a couple of thousand times since Saturday night. But there was a ball up right near the interchange bench. And for the sort of the minute or two before that, um, uh, Kane Baldwin, who'd been playing on either Ryan or, or Pickett for most of the night, uh, didn't have a, an obvious matchup. Pickett had, had sort of gone back and then he actually went to the bench at, at that point as well. So 
Um, he, he found himself playing on Bolton and Prestia in the previous minute or so. So uh, he he didn't have a matchup. He got himself off the ground and Redmond came on, who, you know, we've all now seen run straight out to the far wing. And, and we set up the ground with, with Ridley as that goalkeeper, as the extra man in defence. And the contrast was was Dylan Grimes, Richmond's, you know, probably their best key defender, certainly the most experienced one. He's on the bench and they didn't get him back on the ground. Uh, so, you know, he sees Redmond, he points, he yells out, but he's sitting on the bench. He can't do anything. We had three inside 50s in that last minute and a half, uh, which were, you know, most of them, I think two or three certainly were were sort of long and deep kicks where he could have been an influence and been able to intercept or, or maybe get the ball out of bounds. And then there was the stringer kick to, to Durham at the top of the square. Um, uh, you know, and yeah, you know, Grimes is sitting on the bench, can't do anything, and and Redmond is hugely, uh, you know, in, influential. It's it's just a, a really different incident, isn't it? Yeah, I think when you pointed that out on on Twitter, it reminded me a bit of that second Collingwood game, for in our perspective, where you know, right at the end of that game, we were missing our most experienced player in Heppel, who was who was sitting on the bench and and could have been there to help organise the defence against that last Collingwood play, and and you know, it's similar to what Richmond had. In terms of Grimes, it says a lot about where the the coaching and the, and the thought is for for both sides and and how it's changed since since last year. Um, and I guess it you know that last play does epitomise it. But the whole game, it's it's and just the season so far, it really feels like the first time in a long time that the team is prepared to make significant changes to the way that they are playing in order to match an opponent. Now, that doesn't mean the basic structure of the side or the way they're looking to to play changes, but they're looking to adapt their game to to their opponents and try and take away opposition strengths. So you pointed out the the chipmark game uh, that we played against Richmond really took away their ability to swarm and and build pressure that way. And then if you think back to the previous week, we played a man behind the ball against Brisbane to deal with their really strong forward line and try and score, particularly on rebounds. So you know they're they're making they're not it's not just playing our own way. It's it's really considering what is the opposition going to try to do. And think about the best way that we can combat that without making huge changes to the way where we're trying to go about it. Yeah, and and as a couple of guys who really like to analyse that side of the game, and and we've built a podcast around it, it's certainly giving us plenty to look at and um and to talk about. So from that perspective, it's been really enjoyable too. But yeah, I, I you know we're. We're ten games into the the Brad Scott era now, and there's still a long way to go in this season. But but there really does feel like they're building some trust in in the fan base, and and I'm I'm getting starting to get a sense that we can go to it to a game and 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 appreciate that we're going to get a, a really sustained effort, and that might not uh, result in wins all the time just yet. But but at least we're going to fly the flag and and put something up that that we can. Um, uh, you know that shows that we're we're building and heading in the right direction. And and I will point out, I, I really did enjoy the fact that um, Brad Scott mentioned the fans a couple of times in his post match interviews. I, I think um, that also goes a long way to to getting everyone on board. And um, he he's certainly got a real sense that we've yeah we, we've all really struggled with what we've seen over recent years. Yeah, he's done a great job with just that whole of club buying. So it's easy to focus on, you know, the, the players and then the coaching staff and, and the support staff, but to consider, uh, take a whole of club approach and, and, you know, consider the members and the fans as, as part of that, uh, you know, really builds that, that level of support. And, you know, it keeps, it does sort of keep the pressure off in the sense that we can go through a period where we had, you know, four losses 
in a row, um, despite the fact they're against good sides and you don't really have a groundswell of, you know, anti, anti-Scott build up there. There was, there was a sense that, you know, there was a purpose to what was being done and, and there was a plan there. And even if the results weren't going the way that we were hoping for, you know, it was building towards something. Yeah, spot on, mate. Well said. Yeah. Well, look, let's move on from Dreamtime. And it was confirmed yesterday, today being Thursday, uh, in the weekly injury report that Harry Jones is out for the season. He had not only had back stress fractures, but has gone in for ankle surgery to try and get that right. So trying to get him right to go for the beginning of 2024. It's really disappointing, obviously, given that his previous season was also ruined by injury and Despite the fact he, he didn't have huge numbers, he had been a key part in a lot of early wins with the role he was playing in the structure. Yeah, he, he's a player that I, I really like. It, uh, you know that, and I think most people do. I, I think he's, you know, for his size, he, he's a really good contested mark. And and for his age, he's a really good contested mark. There's not too many players his age or, or younger that that took more contested marks than him in the games that he played. Uh, he's a good kicker goal. Generally, you know, his conversion rates at 70%. You, you know, we, I'm not comparing him to Tony Lockett, but Tony Lockett went at 69.7. So, you know, it's a pretty good indication that, that when he did get opportunities, he was generally converting them at, at, at a pretty good rate. Uh, and yeah, I think structurally he, he, Complements Peter Wright and, and now Wiedemann really, really well because he can get up the ground and come back. Um, and he, he sort of comes in from the side, whereas the other two like to sort of lead straight at the footy. So I think he he gives us a, a really mobile forward option that complement those two really well. So, yeah, let's hope this is um, this is the end of, of his injury woes. He gets himself fit and and can, you know, he, he signs on and, and he has a, a big preseason and we can get, you know, 20 games plus out of him in 2024. Yeah, fingers crossed on that. What that does do with him now out for the season, it does potentially allow for Essendon to take another player in the mid-season draft. So we already had a potentially had a spot available uh, given that Jaden Davey was on the long-term injury list from the moment he joined the club. Now the club at the time pre-season did chose not to take a supplementary pick. So that spot still potentially is open. And then obviously they also have the pick from Jones. So like last season, potentially could take two selections. What's your thoughts there thinking about what the list could need? Yeah, I, I guess one thing to keep in mind is it, is it does sound, listening to the, the news that the club put out yesterday, that Jaden Davey is upping his training load. So I know they ruled him out for this year, but if we don't select two in the mid-season draft and, and we just take the one and we keep a spot open, then we do have the flexibility that if he does get himself right, ahead of schedule that we might, you know, use him in the VFL for one or two games at the end of the year. Uh, I mean, that's not me reading any tea leaves, but um, it's just, uh, I guess, something that we might keep in mind if we think that's a chance, then then if we fill both spots, um, yeah, we, we won't be able to bring him back in. But yeah, it, it'll be interesting this year. Of course, we took Durham in 2021 and then Menzi and, and Massimo D'Ambrosio last year, all three of those finished in our or featured in our win against Richmond on the weekend, plus Snelling, who we took in 2019 as well. Um, of course, there was no mid-season draft in 2020. So you know, we've had a pretty good strike rate um, uh, in that draft. I think it's 
likely to be a bit different this year than previous year in terms of the depth of young talent available. I think we need to remember that we had two years of Victorian lockdowns that meant Victoria or that meant recruiters didn't get a chance to see some of the guys that were drafted in the 2022 mid-season draft until that year. Uh, you know, had it been a, a normal year in 2021, there's every chance someone like Massimo might have been able to prove himself a little bit more and, and been picked up in the national draft that year. So I, I, I don't think the depth of young talent will necessarily be the same as what we've seen last year. Whatever we do, I don't think it'll be a selection with 2023 in mind in on its own right. I, I know we lack for a big body down back, but I suspect would rather see what we can get out of Baldwin, get some games into Reed in the back half of the season, and then, you know, pick up, uh, you know, rather than pick up someone like Oscar McDonald, who will be 28 next year, uh, you know, by that stage, uh, James Stewart comes back from injury. He's got another year on his contract. You know, do you really want to have Oscar McDonald and James Stewart on your list next year? Uh, and, you know, potentially just playing foul footy unless there's a spate of injuries. I'm, I'm not sure that's something that, that from a list management perspective makes a whole lot of sense in a year that is about, you know, developing your your younger players and getting games into them. I think someone like Quinton Nark was a little bit different. He's still only 25. He can play multiple positions, obviously through the midfield, but he can play on a wing. He can play at half forward. And I don't think we have a lot of genuine depth there. And, and I think he's arguably still got some upside um, and, and can improve his game. He's obviously been in a really good system in Geelong and he's seen firsthand what it takes to be a premiership player and and the, and the effort that you need to to get the best out of yourself. So, you know, you could see him playing a role and 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 forcing his way into our best 22. Uh, Jack Cleaver's another one who, you know, he's only just turned 19. He's playing with our VFL. He can play midfield. He can play on a wing. He can play half back or half forward. Um, bit of a bigger body. He's 188 centimetres and 87 kilos. So, you know, he could be an option too. And, and, you know, there's two guys that, you know, we would know really well given their training with us. I'm not sure we'll go for a tall defender, mate, which, you know, he's probably going to surprise and upset some people, but given we've given Baldwin a taste and he's shown some positive signs, we've drafted Hayes last year. We've already got Reed on the list. Cox is back in the VFL this week and sounds like he's going to play as a defender. There's three 200 centimeter defenders on your list. Then there's BZT who we've spoken about and, and he's getting better every week. And, and Laverde is now back from his shoulder injury. So I don't think we're really lacking from lacking for tall defenders. I think what we're lacking is a, is a genuine 200 centimetre big bodied defender that can play on, uh, you know, the likes of Tom Hawkins. But I don't think we're going to find one of those in the preseason draft, or sorry, the mid-season draft. And we would have looked at those that are available in the off-season. You know, if you look at someone like Ethan Phillips, he's the the one that often gets talked about. He's 198, seven, sorry, 198 centimetres, a key defender from Port Melbourne. He won the, the Fothergill round Mitchell medal, which is a bit of a mouthful these days. They've combined a few names there. Um, so that's for the best player in the VFL last year. So he turns 24 in July. We knew about him last year. We we knew we needed a big key defender and we would have looked at, at options both at free agency and, and trade and, and also him in the draft. And, and we didn't, we didn't take him then. I'm not sure if we overlooked him back then, why we'd overlook him or, or why we'd pick him now when we've since drafted Hayes and we've also moved Baldwin down back and seen some signs of him. So it, it, just from a list management strategy perspective, it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense for us to go that way. What I wouldn't be surprised though, mate, is if we went 
the other end of the ground, both for now and and for the future. You know, Wright, Wiedemann, Jones and Voss are, are really the only four key forwards on our list, plus James Stewart, depending on, on where Brad Scott plays him when he does come back. So there's not a huge amount of depth there. Jones, of course, is out for the remainder of this season and Voss we haven't seen a lot of. So, you know, as, as it stands, we've got Wiedemann as our, our one and only fit key forward right now and, and, and Voss who's unsighted. So there are a couple... I admittedly don't know a lot about, um, seen some snippets and read a little bit about them, but Will Elliott's the son of the former test cricketer, Matthew Elliott. He's a 200 centimetre ruck forward from Oakley Chargers. And then there's Jack Buller over in, in WA. He's a 199 centimetre key forward from Claremont. He was overlooked back in 2019 and sounds like he's got himself really fit at, at 22 years of age now. He's he's matured and, and playing some good footy. So sounds like there, there could be a couple of key forward options if we decided mm-hmm. to go that way and, and add a bit of misdepth there. Um, yeah, particularly when you consider Baldwin's now gone from, you know, drafted as a key forward and is now playing back. So, um so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. And this year will be different than last year as well because we don't – we're not going to have as an early pick as we did last year. So, we, we took Massimo at number two. I think we were third last at the time, but North didn't have space on their list, so we ended up with pick two. And and we took Massimo. We took it ahead, him ahead of probably Josh Carmichael. Uh, I think we read really long-term with that pick, and, you know, I think that's shown that Massimo's definitely got talent for the future, and if reports are – true, then there's other clubs that are looking around sniffing, seeing if they can get him out of our system. So he's obviously highly rated there. But as you say, the the talent depth might not be as high this year coming off full years of actual football as opposed to COVID interrupted years. Um, It's likely we'll be down, you know, potentially around the the 10th pick mark. And that may change who is selected if they take anyone at all. I, I don't think they'll necessarily take a player for the sake of it, considering the question around list spots for next year. I haven't done a deep dive into who's coming off contract this year, but there's not many players that come to mind from the main list that you really want to be delisting at this stage. Uh, And then if you bring players in in the mid-season draft, albeit you're bringing them in on the rookie list, um, particularly those that want an 18-month contract as opposed to a six-month contract, you might be unwilling to do that um, considering the long-term best interests of the list. I mean, obviously... Six-month players are almost a free hit, but then you have to consider about the ones that are seeking 18-month contracts, and then that means that you are potentially stuck with them for a further year than you may want. Yeah, that's right. It's a... a it's not as straightforward as it seems. It's not just a case of picking up a player and then you're done. You you really do need to look at this. Um, and, you know, we, we've got some... Uh, restricted free agents in in Parish and um, and Redmond that we need to get signed up. We've got some guys coming out of contract, like Jones and and you know some other guys as well that we need to consider. And and then we will already be talking to some potential trade and free agency targets for for next year as well. So you know the acquisition of someone like Setterfield doesn't just happen in you know in trade week or or whatnot. You know th- those conversations start happening. You know basically as soon as the season starts, if not before. So I, I think there'll be a lot of things that that Adrian Dodoro and he, and you know Josh Marnie and, and our recruiting team will be balancing up, and it'll be much more than just looking at who. Um, you know who who do we feel for the, for the rest of 2023? I think it'll be a a more longer term list management decision than than just what's ahead of us for the rest of this year. Yeah, well, look, we are we decided. Uh, I think looking ahead, we were worried about 
content for the, the West Coast preview, g- given their performance might mean that there's not as much to talk about as usual. So we decided to come up with questions for each other to have a think about. And mine's about Archie Perkins. And Jono, do we need Archie Perkins to become a midfielder or is him being an elite half forward uh, good enough? Yeah, good question, mate. You sprung this one on me this morning, and it, it did um, it did get me thinking. Let me throw some numbers at you. Uh, you know, we are a show that likes their numbers. So, fourteen disposals a game, 0.8 goals, zero point eight of a goal, three point four tackles a game, five point five contested possessions, one point seven clearances, and five point five score involvements. That's not Archie Perkins. That's Shy Bolton in his third season in the AFL back in 2019. He played 19 games in that season, uh, his third season in the in the system, and and it was the year that he started to have a bit of an impact on the competition. And now, of course, he's he's one of the best mid uh, mid forwards in the comp. Uh, so yeah, he he started playing through the midfield that year and, and played the rest of. Uh, his game in the forward line. And and from 2020 onwards, he's increased his midfield time to about 55%. And that's pretty much where it still is at 20, in 2023. So, you know, sort of playing a bit more than half of his game time in the midfield, playing, you know, a fair bit of time forward and then obviously having a rest on the bench. Perkins is a bigger body, of course. He's 188 centimetres compared to Bolton, who's only 175. But they do have some similar traits. Perkins ran a 2.95 second 20 meter in, in the draft combine testing before he was picked up. It's exactly the same as what Bolton tested at in his draft year. So they both have that explosive speed off the mark. Bolton's probably a bit quicker over a longer distance, but uh, in terms of being able to explode out of a contest, they're, they're similar there. They both have that agility to to evade traffic and, and they're both really good overhead, which lends themselves to being able to have an, an impact going forward. If we compare Perkins numbers this year, He's averaging 14.3 disposals, 1.2 goals a game, 2.5 tackles, 3.7 contested possessions, 0.3 of a clearance and six goal, uh, sorry, six score involvements. So really similar disposal numbers. Uh, Bolton was playing a bit more midfield. So of course, a bit more contested possession and clearance. Perkins a bit closer to goal. So a bit more scoreboard impact, but uh, the one difference the other difference between the two is, and, and the benefit for Essen and Archie is that he played 39 games in his first two seasons, whereas Bolton only played the nine uh, before then playing 19 in 2019. So I think, you know, I see his trajectory being quite similar, mate, building up to playing 40 to 55% midfield time as a, as a burst and impact midfielder playing a real offensive style, particularly as Stringer, uh, I think over time is going to slow down. You know, he's had his injury concerns and, and who knows what his longevity might be. So I, I think we'll see Archie develop into that really explosive midfield player for us and then play the rest of his time as a really dangerous forward. And I think when you've got a player who can play really well in both positions, you play them in both positions. Yeah, it's the Shy Bolton comparison is not one I'd thought of, but you put up a pretty compelling case there about what his role going forward could be. And But even then, as I said on Twitter early in the week, the numbers he's currently putting out, making one of the best half-four players in the competition, you know, considering that role, uh, particularly in terms of things like metres gained and inside 50s, um, if that's the base level he can produce for the remainder of his career, he's already going to be a really important player. But as you say, if he can turn into that 40 50% midfield time uh, where it can be effective, that's going to be a bonus. But for me, he's already showing enough that makes him a key component of the side moving forward, even if that is just in that half forward role. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, he he's going to... 
yeah, comparisons aside, I think what we do have is a really good Archie Perkins. So, uh, yeah, I think if he can can add some more midfield time to his game, then then he takes his game to another level. But uh, but yeah, if he does stay as a predominantly as a half forward, then I think he's going to have a really good career there too. But yeah, back at you, mate. Question for you, and and I, I proposed this before we knew what selection looked like. So, um, uh, what does our backline look like when Laverde and, and Kelly returns? How how do we fit them all in? Yeah, I think with this, obviously Laverde is back in this week, and we'll get to selection soon, but. We look back to the makeup of the back line in round one. We get a sense of how I think Brad Scott wants to structure it going forward. And these labels, I think, are a bit arbitrary and, and they, they can be a bit pitch and holy. Players players can and do do more than one role in a game, but this is just how I visualise it. Uh, if you go back to the, then, the, the back line was two what we would call key defenders, so Laverde and BZT, one intercept defender in Ridley, uh, one medium defender in Kelly, a small defender in McGrath, uh, predominantly rebounder in Redmond, and then a seventh defender. And in round one, that was actually Langford. Now, as I said, those, those labels are a bit arbitrary. And, uh, you know, for example, a player like McGrath, whilst he does play that small defender lockdown role, he can also do that whilst being a really effective rebound player. But I think overall, it gives us a rough idea of what the preferred structure is at this stage. Do so you think then to last round against Richmond, they ran BZT and Baldwin as the key defenders, Ridley was the intercept or, or the backstop or the wicket keeper as, as you're trying to make a thing. Um, Redmond seemed to move more into that medium role um, with Kelly out. Uh, McGrath was obviously the small and then Hind as that rebounder. And then Heppel's moved into that seventh defender position and is doing a really good job. Um, really impressed with what Baldwin showed. Um, obviously, uh, hasn't been selected this week, um, but he's given himself a really good opportunity to establish himself on the list Going forward, I, I don't think there's any shame him going out for Laverty, though, at this stage of his development. It's going to allow him to keep learning in the VFL. Um, as for Kelly, uh, once he's ready to go, I think you right, rotate Hind out, uh, potentially into the sub role where, where he's been effective somewhat this year. Redmond moves him back into that rebounding defender position, and then Kelly takes his spot back as a medium. I've been really impressed with Kelly, not only defensively, but I think he's he's made improvements with his offensive game. We heard a lot preseason about the coaches working with him on moving the ball on quickly. Uh, I think that that's shown in his play so far this year. And then, yeah, just back on Heppel, he's, he's done some great defensive roles this past fortnight and he deserves to keep his spot as that seventh defender, that really flexible player that, that can be defensive, but also float around and, and feel odd jobs. So in the immediate future, I think you're looking at the back six of BZT, Laverty, Ridley, Kelly, Redmond, McGrath, and Heppel, which is basically what they started the season with, except uh, Heppel moving into that seventh defender position instead of Langford. Um, out of those, I think the person most likely to lose their spot first is Heppel. Um, with It sounds like Nick Cox coming back through the VFL this week. I think it's the best role for him to go and come into the side as that seventh defender, make the best use of his attributes. So we, we see Heppel getting up the ground and, you know, sort of playing as almost as a, that defensive winger sometimes in that seventh defensive role. Um, I think that's where he will likely come in. So, but obviously that does depend on Heppel's form dropping away or Cox really showing a lot as that seventh defender. But I think that's how they'll structure up going forward. Yeah, I think structure is the key part there, isn't it? We, you know, we really missed Ridley when he went down with concussion against Port Adelaide. And then we really suffered for a, a lack of structure thereafter and, and against Brisbane without him too. So 
what we were able to do last week is get close to that structure we had earlier in the season where our back line looked more settled and, and we're intercepting and, and driving our offense with really good effect. And, and it meant that, you know, um, BCT takes the most dangerous forward. Uh, Laverde or or Baldwin takes the second one and then Ridley can either take the sort of the resting Ruckman or the third tall and, and intercept where possible. And then, uh, yeah, Redman and, and McGrath can get a little bit more offensive. And, and of course, McGrath's done some really good shutdown jobs as well. His ability to do both shutdown, lockdown and, and rebound is something that's quite unique and, and a real weapon for us. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out and um and and what happens when Cox, you know, does get some VFL minutes under his belt and they bring him into the senior side. Yeah. Well, look, let's finally get on to West Coast and, and start analyzing their performance. And look, last year West Coast finished second last, only had two wins uh, against Collingwood and Essendon and a percentage of fifty-nine point eight. Uh so far this year, they are last with only a single victory and a percentage of fifty-five point four. Uh, their last eight games have seen them lose by over 40 points. And the only win in the season came in round two where they defeated GWS. And GWS were coming off a come-from-behind win in 36-degree heat uh, against Adelaide and also suffered key injuries to players like Whitfield, Perryman and Kelly. So it was a really depleted GWS side that ended up going having to fly over to, to Perth to play West Coast in that match. And, and that was the only game that the Eagles were managed to win this year. Um, so as you can imagine, the statistics don't make for very pretty reading. Uh, their last scores four with only 60 point, 64 points per game, and they concede the most in the competition with 116 per game. Now that's 14 more than the next side in North Melbourne. Um, also really stand out that they're only side to average under 200 kicks per game. So they're really not getting their hands on the ball uh, with any regularity. They're also bottom for generating inside 50s with only 42 per game, and they concede the most with 59.8 per game. Uh, second last for standing clearance differentials and the second worst at stoppage. They concede 3.7 more stoppages a game than their opponents, um, and that's also reflected in their contested possession numbers. Uh, they have 16 less contested possessions per game than their opponents. Uh, when you can, That's the lowest in the competition. The next worst is GWS, who only has a differential of, of minus six. So they're 10 contested possessions contested possessions worse than the next worst side in the competition. If you think back to their premiership year of 2018, the hallmark was their ability to control the ball through the air. So that year they would take 12 more marks and 2.4 more contested marks than their opponent. Uh, if you look at the numbers this year, they're, they're down 11 marks a game and they're down 3.4 contested marks a game although they are coming up against the side in Essendon, which is currently the worst contested marking side in the game. And we're actually going at minus 3.7. So that area might not be as big a problem for them this week as it has been in previous weeks. They're also conceding eight more marks inside 50 to their opponents and they're generating some good numbers for them. They've got the second highest raw tackle numbers this season. Uh, but again, they're, that is in part because they're getting their second to the ball um, and they're actually conceding four more tackles per game than they generate, which is really alarming considering the possession numbers that they are generating and their opponents are generating. And they also have the third worst intercept differential at minus 3.9. Although again, it's not something that SNN is a lot much better at in terms of having an advantage. 
Yeah, it, it's obviously really hard to draw a lot from their performances this year to to sort of break things down and 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 go deeper on. And and their statistical profile is obviously pretty damning reading. And I think we're all well aware of how they've been tracking. So, uh, yeah, rather than uh, than flogging the dead horse, so to speak, let's have a look at selection made and, and what's taken place there. Yeah, well, look, so. Obviously, for West Coast, there's actually been some big names come back in. So, uh, Tom Barras, Shannon Hearn, Elliot Yo are all back, all big names for them, as well as Luke Edwards. Uh, out goes Xavier O'Neill, Campbell Chesser, uh, Greg Clark, who was the sub last week. But they've also, you know, for such an injury hit list, suffered two more injuries. So, Jermaine Jones, who only just come back into the side, has done an ankle, and Harry Edwards has done a groin. Um, as I said, some good names back in for West Coast. So, Yo's in for his third game of the season and the first since round five. Uh, Hearn's in for his seventh and Barras for his tenth. So I know the people are concerned that they're getting players back at this time, but, you know, Hearn and Barras have been in for most of the season and it hasn't helped them do much better. Yo's obviously a big in for them. Uh, the other big news for them is that Oscar Allen, who was seemingly under an injury cloud after an incident at training, has, has seemingly got up. So that's really important for them given their lack of alternative scoring pathways. So it's probably the best team that they've had for a while, um, as well as the fact that they're playing at home and, and they've had the blowtorch applied to them all week. I expect it's going to be a much different Eagle side that comes out against Essendon, um, the, the side that played against Hawthorne last week. Yeah, I, you would expect that they're going to to start the game with a, a fair bit more intensity than than they finished the game with last week. So I think that the key for us will be really to to be on our game in quarter one and and if we can ride the um the sort of bad loss bounce that that will ultimately happen in that first quarter then I think we give our, ourselves a really good chance and you know shouldn't Hearn uh you know <laughs> tempting fate in saying this isn't the player that that he once was he, he's slowed down he, he doesn't offer a lot uh or as much as he used to defensively he's, he's obviously still a very good kick but he's getting the ball under a lot more pressure than what he did in the past and um and you know Elliot Yo hasn't played a lot of footy this year so you might expect that he'd be a little bit underdone uh so yeah we'll we'll see how we go but um what's happened to our side mate um what have we done there yeah, so three changes for Essendon and three players coming back from injury. So uh, Laverde, Shiel and Guelphy are all in. Uh, I think there were some question marks over Shiel uh, in regards to his ankle, whether we get up, but it does seem like he's going to be back in the side, which again is really good for our midfield depth. Uh, out goes uh, Andrew Phillips, who's been managed. Uh, Alwyn Davy Jr., Kane Baldwin and Massimo D'Ambrosio have all been omitted. Uh, emergencies for Essendon are Nick Bryan, Kane Baldwin, Massimo D'Ambrosio and Alwyn Davy Jr. Yeah, I think if we were worry, worried that we might take the foot off the pedal and, and take the Eagles lightly and and allow some complacency to settle in, then we certainly haven't done that at the selection table. I think Brad Scott and his coaches have sent a pretty strong um, message here. Phillips is the only player who we've managed and, and that's not um, a surprise, you know, it's something that that happens to him, you know, every sort of four or five weeks, and and we've brought three pretty experienced players back into the team. Uh, on the balance of it, you would think Massimo would probably be sub. I guess from those names, I, I would imagine so. Uh, although I guess he has been sub recently, they might want to be getting full games into him. Uh, for me, the most interesting thing is I haven't brought in at all to replace Phillips. Um, it does mean Wiedemann's going to be the second ruck, which also has a flow-on effect that there may be times in the game where we don't have 
a tall forward. It actually wouldn't surprise me if Brian is a late in and, and someone else, maybe a Snelling, uh, becomes a sub. It also means that if we don't make that choice, there's going to be occasions we're going to have to be really careful avoiding going high into the forward line. Uh, you mentioned Hearn has slowed down a bit, but I think if you, you kicked it high and long uh, into their defence with with players like Barras and, and Hearn in the side, you might struggle um, to maintain control of the ball without those big forwards to to crash the packs if, you, if that's the way you play. Um, but also not having a tall forward might make the players more likely to lower their eyes as opposed to bomb away. So there's opportunities there either way. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think Baldwin's a bit unlucky, but again, uh, his performance probably means that he's really given himself the best chance of earning a contract for next year. I think there were question marks about whether he was going to make it as a forward. Um, the fact that he's shown he could be effective defensively uh, with our potential def- key defensive issues means that uh, he probably has got a contract for next year now, I would say. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, Laverde has some runs on the board. That means he comes straight back in for me. Yeah, I've got no problem with the, you know, last in, first out approach. Uh, you know, you're you're right, Laverde does have the runs on the board and, and if he's fully fit and fully tested, then yeah, un, unlucky for Kane, but it, it makes sense to to, you know, when we're trying to build system and build structure to to get our best players playing as many games together as they can. Yeah. Well, look, let's look at West Coast's last game and it was described as the darkest day in, in West Coast history, which is interesting considered the some of the the carry on that's happened around West Coast in the past, but 18th place Hawthorne kicked uh, 22 goals, 10, 142 to defeat West Coast, four goals to 26. And West Coast could only manage two behinds after half time. Um, as Hawthorne with a seven goal opening quarter and eight goal final quarter ran out 116 point winners. Um, West Coast were obliterated stats wise. They were down 137 disposals, 41 inside 50s, 34 contested possessions and 17 marks inside 50. Uh, the one area they were competitive was in stoppage clearances, which they only lost by one, and tackles. But even though they were down 137 disposals, uh, they still finished eight tackles behind Hawthorne. So it's, it's pretty, uh, you know, even though that's quite a high tackle number, it's really not that impressive a stat given the dominance Hawthorne had in terms of possession. Um, only three West Coast players in Sheed, Witherden and Kelly had over 20 disposals, uh, whilst over 11 Hawthorne players had more than that figure. I can't imagine you were rushing to the TV to check this one out. Did you catch any of the match? Yeah, bits and pieces, mate. I certainly didn't sit down and watch the full replay of it like I I typically do. So, yeah, it, it, it's not one that, that will uh, uh, go into the archives as a great example of, of Australian rules football. Uh, and it's a tough one for for how we might approach things this week. Obviously, it... it it becomes a lot more about what we do than than what we do about the opposition. You know, we spoke earlier about how we went to the G last Saturday night with a, a game plan to to beat Richmond. This is more about making sure that we we go with our game style and, and our structure and, and and we play at a level of intensity that we want to see when we're playing, you know, Collingwood and, and Geelong and, and Melbourne and the best side of the competition. Uh, so uh, yeah, they they rank second for tackles per game and, and fifth rebound fifties per game. They're the sort of the two areas where they're high. But as you mentioned, you know they they still get out tackled. Um, they don't have the ball as often as their opposition. So so they are doing a lot of defending and and they're conceding a lot of inside fifties in the first place, which is creating the opportunities for them to rebound. 
The one area they would look at us and draw some hope from is inside 50s conceded. They rank 18th at 59.8 a game and we're 17th at 58.5. We've had a real issue giving up inside 50s the last five or six weeks. But as we spoke about earlier, we did rectify that somewhat after quarter time against Richmond. So hopefully that's a trend that continues. And and where we are different is West Coast can see to score 53.5% of the time the opposition goes inside 50. So that that ranks them 18th in the comp, whereas we rank ninth in that area. So we're, we're pretty good at, at, even though we're conceding a lot of inside 50s, we're not conceding the number of scores that, that other teams are. So uh, 46.7% of the time a score is, is scored on or is kicked on us when, when the opposition goes inside 50. Just for context, Port Adelaide ranked number one in that area at 44.9. So you know, we're a lot closer to first in the competition than we are to 18th. I think the keys for this week made her at an individual level and also at a KPI level. I think despite their troubles this year, Oscar Allen Oscar Allen's had a really good year. If he does get up from his injury, he's kicked 25 goals for the year. Uh, I think that's a big matchup for BZT and, and we just want to go and see him go and win the contest and, and win that matchup. Tim Kelly has had a really good year as well. He ranks seventh in the AFL for disposals and 11th for clearances, given he hasn't had a lot of help in that midfield. I think he's done a pretty good job. So I think we need to ensure one of our mids is playing a real defensive role at times or, or at all times on him and, and they don't go kick chasing. I think in games like this, there's a real risk that everyone tries to to see ball, get ball and, and stat pad a little bit. So, you know, this is a, a different type of challenge, I think, for the likes of Stringer, Caldwell and Hobbs, it's it's as much mental as it is anything else. And then Barras is another player that's hurt us in the past. He he ranks 13th for in the AFL for intercept marks. So uh, our ball use is going to be really important going forward, particularly if we don't make a late change and, and we do go in with just Wiedemann up, up front uh, as our only key forward. Uh, and I think he the ability of our forwards to create space and get one-on-ones is going to be really important. Again, he he also ranks fourth in the AFL for the, the most one-on-one contest loss. So a little bit like we spoke about um, last week playing Richmond, you know, that with Bolter, Barras is someone who, if you allow him, can intercept Mark at a high rate. But if you can get him one-on-one, then you can also expose him. So I think, um, I think there's some players there that we're just going to have to be really mindful of. Yeah. And I guess from Essendon's perspective, you mentioned uh, KPIs and, and things that when you're playing the lower sides, you really want to be making sure that you're ticking off and, and keeping in the back of your mind so you're not losing focus and, as you say, sort of stat padding there. Yeah, I think in a game like this, you you make the scoreboard secondary to everything else, right? So if we do the right things for long enough and, and often enough, then the scoreboard will look after itself. We had a, a season high sixteen inside fifty tackles last week, which you know, on if you break that down, it's obviously four a quarter on average. So we want to be beating that this week. A, a teams have averaged fourteen point two against West Coast this season. So you know, we want to be seeing whether we can get that up to you know eighteen twenty plus for the game, and 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 really try and and um, uh, bed that as part of our DNA this week, and, and get lots of tackles in that part of the ground. In line for that, we've been averaging 23.4 points a game from forward half turnovers, which is in line with what teams have been doing against West Coast this year. They can see 22.5 uh, points a game from from um, forward half turnovers or, or in their case, in their in their defensive half. So I think we want to be hitting 24 plus and, and try and push that up to, you know, 30 points a game and just have a really high pressure, uh, front half pressure game, lots of inside 50 tackles and, and 
causing turnovers and then being able to to score from those. And then finally, we want to win contested ball and win it well, another area where we haven't done a great job of, and, and that'll look after a lot of other things. So I think these three indicators speak to our work rate, our our wants to, to go and sit up the ground, to hunt the ball and to win it back from the opposition. And if we can do those things well, then I think um, the, the game will ultimately look after itself. Yeah, well, fingers crossed on that, given there's a lot of fans out there that have spent the week, you know, really worried about this game and, and talking about games in the past uh, where we were expected to win and, and have lost. So my final thought question for you this week is Essendon's fans' irrational fears about this game justified? Yeah, I think it is made until it isn't, right? Like, um, you know, we keep talking about new challenges for the group and we've had a lot of those this year. we uh, you know, we had the challenge of losing Peter Wright on the eve of round one, and then and then we came out and, and won in round one. You know, we we lost our captain for Anzac Day and thought that that was going to be a bit of a boil over. And and you know, we arguably lost a game that we should have won. Uh, we thought we would get rolled by Richmond last week when we didn't have Parish and Setterfield and Shield in the midfield, and and we lifted to that challenge and won. So, uh, you know, we've had the challenge of playing in front of you know quite hostile crowds like over in Port Adelaide and and Ridley going down and having to to keep ourselves in the contest. And again, we arguably lost a game that we should have won. We've had challenge of losing you know of interstate trips and and losing games on the trot and coming back and 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 winning last week. So. Yeah, I think this is just another one of those challenges that as a supporter group, we we need to see our club tick off and um and you know win back some of that that trust and 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 alleviate some of our fears. So uh, you know, a, an interstate trip against the bottom side who's had one of their worst losses in history just you know screams of a, an Essendon letdown, doesn't it? But you know, so far this year, for the most part, we've been able to to tick those challenges off and and prove that this is a different Essendon. So you know, I'm I'm reasonably confident that we'll get the same again this week. Yeah, I I am too. There's just that tiny part in the back voice in the back of your mind that that constantly gets to you. So as you say, like you mentioned those those KPIs earlier. If we're ticking those off early, I think that'll set a lot of those thoughts for a, a lot of fans, and and hopefully we do come out and add another tick to the the challenge column this season. Well, look, that'll do us for this week. Once again, thanks to everyone for your ongoing uh, support of the show and and your conversations with us. We say it every week, but we really appreciate it um, and really enjoy hearing from everyone. Uh, Any final words from you, Jono? Uh, no, thanks. We've had a couple of reviews in the last couple of weeks as well, which we uh, are really grateful for. Uh, thanks, yeah, for everyone who signed up to our Patreon as well and and the feedback that you're giving on the on the videos that we're sharing there. Hopefully you're getting value out of those. Uh, if there's anything that you want to see or you're not sure about or, or you'd like us to cover in, in future episodes, uh, please drop us a line, either email donthestat at gmail.com or uh, either one of us are on Twitter. Our our Twitter handles are in the show notes so you can find us there. But yeah, uh, thanks everyone once again for your support and look forward to sitting down and watching us beat the Eagles on Saturday night. Well said, mate. Well, again, wishing everyone the best for Saturday night and go Dons.